0: everything that we had been doing and learning and, and building in the marketplace was primely situated to turn into a software product that we would then license to every commercial real estate operator in the country, hopefully to manage their own investor bases. Because really what we saw was that while the CrowdStreet marketplace was a marketplace that every operator had its own marketplace
1: Welcome to Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's guide to U.S. real estate, a podcast for international investors and real estate entrepreneurs looking to break into the U.S. market. G'day, g'day, guys, and welcome to another cracking edition of Investing in the U.S., an Aussie's guide to U.S. real estate. From Los Angeles, I'm your host, Reid Goosens. Good as always to have you with us on the show. Now, as you know, it is my job to explore, dissect, and interview the cream of the crop real estate investors, business owners, and entrepreneurs here in the United States. There's no BS on this show, just in-depth conversations about successfully investing in the U.S. and how you go about doing it to create long-term wealth and financial freedom. I want you all to be educated when it comes to investing here in the United States, and it starts by you tuning in each and every week to increase your financial IQ. Remember to hit subscribe on iTunes or wherever you podcast to be notified each and every week when a cracking episode is released. If you do like this show, please give us a review on iTunes, and you can follow me on Facebook and Twitter by searching Reed Goosen's. Now before we dive into today's show and introduce you to the cracking entrepreneur, I want to announce that I have a new website. I'm pretty stoked about this new website and the podcast will be hosted up on my personal website which is going to be reedgoossens.com head over there you're going to find out a lot more about me what makes me tick my services and you're also going to find a ton of free information educational blogs videos and webinars remember but remember head over to reedgoossens.com Okay, one last thing. If you are listening to this on iTunes, but you want to see what we look like, what I look like, what my awesome guests look like, then head over to YouTube because we are starting to record these interviews using video, using the Zoom link. So head over to youtube.com, search for Read Goossens, and you'll be able to find all my videos of episodes that we have recorded via the Zoom link. All right, guys, enough out of me. Let's get cracking and into today's show. Today on the show, I have the pleasure of speaking with Ian Formigli, VP of Investments at CrowdStreet.com. Ian is a real estate private equity professional and serial entrepreneur with over 20 years experience. At CrowdStreet.com, Ian oversees its marketplace, an online commercial real estate investment platform that has completed over 125 offerings totaling some $3.7 billion in project value. Ian holds degrees in economics and political science from UC Berkeley. So without further ado, let's get him out here.
0: G'day, Ian. Welcome to the show. Thanks, Reid. It's a pleasure to be on the show. Thanks for having me.
1: Mate, before we dive into the nuts and bolts of today's show and understanding a little bit more about your business, I wanted to start the conversation right back at the beginning. How did you make your first dollar?
0: Well, I'll go back to when I made my first dollar, I guess, in real estate since that's the topic of the conversation. (laughs) So my career started first as a... I was a derivatives trader originally. So coming out of, and I, I participated in the end of the, I would say kind of the, the gold rush days. Of, and so in the early 2000s was after the, we experienced the dot-com burst and bear market, uh, I was at that time, a I was a floor trading market maker. So I wore the jacket, stood in the crowd and traded options predominantly on Microsoft. Then <laughs> I began to think through what would be the next steps in my career. And it was at that point that I had I had grown up in a real estate family, and I had been fortunate enough in my early part of career to be uh, somewhat successful on the floor and start making some money in that, um, in that industry, and then also faced with the reality that the days of floor trading were going away. and that, And it was really at that point that I decided that I would shift my career towards real estate. And so my first dollars made in real estate were like a lot of investors out there. Then I started buying single family homes. And so acquired, at this time I was living in California. And so in 2002, I started purchasing single family kind of ranchers, threes and, three and twos that could use a little bit of fixing up. And, mm-hmm. and I, we acquired, we managed, we rented, and then we ultimately flipped out of those homes uh, in 2005. And that was really what started the next leg of, of my real estate career, which trended in multifamily. But those were the first dollars in the deal. And it was just simply by thinking through what, what was I going to do next and seeing an opportunity and what looked like attractive, you know, California real estate in 2002.
1: Well, mate, It sounds like you got into the market at the right time. Did you exit at the right time before 2008?
0: <laughs> yeah. Well, so yeah. And I guess, so in, so, the exit was on the single family side that was i was you know fortuitous in the sense that a rudimentary cash flow model was what got me into single family investing in california and it was that rudimentary cash flow model that got me out of california in 2005 in essence in 2002, I could go out. This time, this was kind of in the Sacramento region of California. We could go out and buy homes, $200,000, rent them for $1, 15, 1600 a month, and you know, given the the you know, putting a 80% loan to value on that, you could cash flow that property. Right. And then by, the, by 2004, when those homes went from two and change to 350, 375, the cash flow model deteriorated and it, and it became cash flow negative. And since I was a trader by nature, I was looking to buy low volatility. When the volatility became high, I became a seller of volatility. So when, as soon as the cash flow model flipped negative, I went from being a buyer to a seller rapidly and that's what got us out of California in 05. We then started acquiring. So then the question is, did I, did I miss, did I, did I magically time to get out of the 2008? <laughs> well, no, I, I got caught with some of the properties and, but we did. So we moved into multifamily started acquiring properties in Birmingham, Alabama. So acquired some deals there. Uh, those we sold in 2007. We then acquired properties in the Dallas-Fort Worth Metro in 2006 to 2007. Uh, and I would say somewhat, you know, so we, we took our share of, I guess, lumps of riding through the downturn. Um, and then we also acquired properties in Oklahoma and then eventually Kentucky. But I would say at least the, the silver lining on the multifamily deals were that when you have apartments that are they're okay, that have people living in them, then just because the downturn hits, they don't stop living there. Right. So we were able ultimately to kind of see the properties through and ultimately we started to exit the Dallas deals in... 2013, 2014. So you know, probably really the the lesson learned there was, you know, while we thought we maybe had three or four year holds, it really turned it more like into six to seven year holds, because we had to you know hold through a downturn.
1: Interesting. That's uh, that brings up a lot of questions just off off the bat there because you said you sold the entire portfolio now, and, and did you do well? Because you 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 know, I can imagine multifamily back in you know 2006 was pretty good pickings, right? Obviously, it's before the downturn, but you've weathered that downturn. And, you know, in the last five years, we've seen some pretty hot uh, multifamily markets around the countries, particularly in Dallas-Fort Worth. So did you do well on those deals when you exited in 2014,
0: 2013? Yeah, I'd say overall, I think... Retrospectively, I feel like I did okay. I think that if we had held on for another year or two, we would have obviously done better. Right. And But, you know, that was where, you know, the exit at the time was kind of also, this is kind of one of those lessons learned for investors that, you know, when a partnership is ready to move on and exit a portfolio, you know, of some properties, then, then you can do okay, but sometimes you look back and say, "Well, what really, was that the, What were the decisions that were made to exit?" And a lot of those decisions might have been just personal preference to kind of you know, clean you know. Take, a, take the chips off the table and, and move them into the next investment portfolio, and perhaps keeping them in there for another couple of years. You know, in, it per- particularly in hindsight, would have been the better call. So we would have certainly done better if we had exited in 15 or 16 than 13, because Dallas. If you, if you look back at that market, I mean, Dallas was really just getting its momentum in 2013 and 2014, which really put on in 14, 15, and then 16.
1: Right, right. No, it's, it's, it's interesting that you, you talk about the preferences and, and, or, or partnerships because you always sort of have that grass is greener feeling, right? When you're, you're in a partnership and you're like, oh, we can do it, something better with this money. And particularly, I'm sure if you've weathered a few years, probably what, 2013, you would have been weathering like five to six years of not the best times maybe. So people get itchy feet and they start saying, let's, let's shift this capital somewhere else. What did you shift know, uh, shifting it into? Uh, real estate or something different?
0: yeah i mean i think for i mean personally speaking i think so the answer was the partnership the money was scattered in different directions some people were taking it and literally applying it towards their children's college tuition right my personal case you know we had significant partnership interest in those deals and what we ended up doing with those proceeds was investing really and then what became future investments both through my previous private equity group and then now on my own crowd street platform so we i I literally some of the money coming out of those deals in, D- in Dallas is now scattered amongst a portfolio of properties that I've invested in through CrowdStreet.
1: Nice, nice. Well, very good segue into CrowdStreet. Do you want to talk a little bit about the menu options and what CrowdStreet does? Well, let's just, wait, hang on, let's just first talk about what CrowdStreet is and then we'll get into sort of the options of services that people can can, can use and use uh, CrowdStreet for to maximize their ability to maybe get, gain access to to more deals, right? So let's start at the beginning. Was Crowdstreet a um, a brainchild of anyone in particular one of the partners, yourself, and why was it why was it, you know, that what, what sets Crowdstreet apart from everything else?
0: Sure. So going back to the beginning, the Crowdstreet is in essence the brainchild of one of our co-founders, uh, Darren Powderly. He was a, at that time a so if we go back to 2012, he was a commercial real estate broker. Um, at this time based in Bend, Oregon and had obviously been a broker through the downturn and had seen, you know, as, as a broker, what he had been witness to was kind of a lot of inefficient capital structures through the downturn, seeing properties come, seeing them go, seeing how banks were reticent to to land and uh, and see opportunity. And I think what Darren told me in getting to know him in the early years was that it was during that period of time that he started thinking to the future and thinking, there has to be a better way in the future to capitalize real estate in such a way that is not so dependent upon so few players. And that some of the downturn he saw attributable to this over-concentration of power into, into the hands of a few. And that if we could disaggregate the you know, and, and spread the control of real estate amongst, a, you know, spread it more thinly across a much broader audience, But ultimately, that was a more sustainable model for the future. Then concurrently, at the same time, was when the JOBS Act was then coming about. So that was passed in 2012. Title II of the JOBS Act, which went live in the fall of 2013, was what enabled the Crowd Street marketplace to become a reality, in that it was going to enable for the first time since, well, since the Securities Act of 1933, you know, the public general solicitation or advertising of private reg d offerings so darren was looking at uh, at all this happening seeing the legislation that was coming to form and then determined at that point that he saw the opportunity in that if we could now publicize and talk about Reg D offerings in a way that we couldn't do before, that we could put them online. And if we could put them online, we could start showing them to people that had never seen them before, or maybe maybe had seen them in their own backyard, but had certainly never seen them from across the country. And that if we could do that, then we would have an opportunity to actually apply technology to this new world of you know generally advertised commercial real estate offerings and then by harnessing technology to that we could allow scale to come to it that had never come before so that in, in essence was the genesis of what became the crowdstreet marketplace and so he then in 2013 then teamed up with Torstein who is our other co-founder to really take this from an idea and make this into a reality and so in early 2014, and technically in April of 2014, the CrowdStreet Marketplace went live. And so then the first where, when I, and then where I come into the picture is that once the CrowdStreet Marketplace went live, they actually had something to, to build and grow. And then they needed their first, you know, kind of key uh, executives to to wrap around them to, to form the original, you know, the original exec team. Uh, at that point, when I when i was approached by crowdstreet there was a vp of product and marketing who had who had just joined and he had come from a large uh, accounting software background he had actually you know managed teams of uh, software developers and built you know, massive institutional enterprise software products that were now generating hundreds of millions of dollars of revenue for their for his previous company, and then they they approached me and said essentially, now we need a, we need a chief investment officer, we need somebody to who comes out of a real estate private equity background who can understand you know real estate private equity offerings and manage what you know would then become the CrowdStreet marketplace.
1: Interesting. That's a very very in depth explanation of, of what CrowdStreet does on on the. On the investor side, but then also I know just from from speaking with you that, and, and speaking to other people, that it also helps on the sponsorship side. So, how does that, and how are you? you know, differentiating yourself from the other crowd street platforms out there. So people are like, well, you're just another crowd street, uh, you know, no, you're just another crowd pl- funding platform that seems to be, you know, so many, every man and his dog seems to be starting a crowdfunding platform in the, since, since since the jobs act
0: started. So what makes you different? absolutely and so i think really the key differentiator for us really is the software side of our business and so the and the origins of the software side of the company do date back to 2014 when we were now live as a marketplace but we were learning rapidly in that in those early days of 2014 you know when this when this was kind of we were at the forefront of the first wave of crowdfunding platforms And what we learned as we got out there and started talking to sponsors and experiencing what, you know, was going to become of this new world of online, you know, capital finance of crowd of crowdfunding, you know, real estate was that in the sponsors out there acknowledged the need to go online, which was why they were talking to us to, to go into a marketplace, but that by seeking out best in class sponsors we understood that every sponsor who approached us already had an existing investor base and that this was simply a modality shift. They were going to do exactly what they were doing for all of the years at which they had been doing it. They just now needed to do it in a modern fashion. And so as we got to know these sponsors and we, we got to empathize with that story, and then we overlaid that with asking them the question of saying, I go to your website and I see an investor portal login. What is behind that? And they would typically say one of two things, either A, nothing, or B, you know, two, uh, a, a, a glorified Dropbox that we deployed in 2006 and it really doesn't work so well anymore and we've more or less forgotten it. That really turned us on to the idea that everything that we had been doing and learning and, it, and building in the marketplace was primely situated to turn into a software product that we would then license to every commercial real estate operator in the country, hopefully, to manage their own investor bases Because really what we saw was that while the CrowdStreet marketplace was a marketplace, that every operator had its own marketplace. Right. It just was with 300 investors instead of with 3,000 or 10,000 or 20,000 living out. So, So in essence, we say, you know, really what we should be doing is we should be providing the real estate world with marketplaces, of which ours is just simply... A public one that we that we advertise and we we generate an audience but so in essence it was that realization at the end of 2014 which said we really need to become an industry leading software provider to the commercial real estate world to teach them everything that we've been doing in in our marketplace for they can do their own marketplaces and this wasn't necessarily this wasn't a new idea This was something that Amazon had figured out in the 90s with e-commerce to say when you know how to build a marketplace and then your clients are are retailers that are now trying to become e-tailers and they have no idea what a shopping cart is or how to take a payment processing online that we could solve, if we could solve the real estate private equity equivalent of those, we would potentially have a very powerful offering of offering them software tools to go online at the same time that would then integrate seamlessly to a public marketplace that would enable them to meet new investors, which they could ultimately manage through their software that were subscribing to us. So we, we went down that path, we launched the software product in April of 2015 really started getting it going in the summer of, of April of 15. And now we have upwards of 100 companies that license the software that manage, there is over, there's over over $3 billion of equity that is managed through those amongst 26,000 investors out there that, that are those software subscribers, investors. And we simply, now we power their online experience. And we even now power the online experience of a a couple crowdfunding platforms out there so so now we so we've now found ourselves in this you know so that is the the kind of that is the bifurcation of our business model that you know ultimately and and my goal by running the marketplace is i i hope to scale and and build a you know a hundred thousand investor you know marketplace but my ultimate goal is is that that becomes an insignificant portion of our total revenue um, because right. we, we, we ultimately know that we think that the most, you know, kind of transcendent possibility here is really as, as a, you know, software provider to the commercial real estate world.
1: That's very, very interesting. Very, very smart. Uh, for, for first and foremost, um, a few questions that come out of the whole, you know, you still talk about the, the fact that each and every investment company has its own organic investor database, 200, 300 people. So this software, does it link into to my own website, whether it be rsmpropertygroup.com or does it link into crowdstreet.com slash invest, you know, investment company here name, you know what I mean?
0: Absolutely. And the answer is it links off of that own sponsors website. So let's just say we go to abccapitalpartners.com. Right. And they are a reputable, you know, a multifamily operator based in the Southeast of the United States. They have their own investor bases and they have a portfolio of 5,000 units and are acquiring, you know, another thousand this year. So we, they would come to us and say, we want to move online and we want to manage all of our existing relationships, all of our portfolio, and then be, be be able to market new investment opportunities to our own investor base. So they would, they would subscribe to our li- our software, we would then build off of a button typically labeled investors on their website. That would be the gateway to the CrowdStreet product, which would essentially be invest.abccapitalpartners.com. If you click the investors button, you would feel like you're still on their website, but you've actually left their website and you're in an AWS instance, which we power. We will then, what we will have done prior to launching the, the the new subscriber, we will have uploaded all of their portfolio data, all of their investor data, right? They manage all of that. And we're now simply we are the we are the plumbing for their online, you know, cloud-based investor experience. And so when the investor shoots through that portal, they're now in the same technology that CrowdStreet is using its in its marketplace. Now it is just simply branded to abccapitalpartners.com with their font, their logo, their images, their likeness, their color scheme, and the work. So the investor doesn't even know that they're outside of ABC Capital Partners. But really what we know is that they're just utilizing the CrowdStreet technology. And what we have felt is our secret sauce in this realm is that that technology has been based upon our experiences in growing and managing a marketplace which now has thousands of investors with billions of dollars worth of deals and so we know and we can empathize for what our best practice is and what is the key functionality that really makes this work from soup to nuts so everything that we build is what the subscriber gets Every time that that product gets better in the marketplace, it gets better for the subscriber because, again, it's the same technology at the end of the day. It is just simply customized to their own likeness.
1: Interesting. Very, very interesting. So talk to me a little bit about the, the – you get a back end, love the idea of having a my own it, – it I guess it would also take – before I get into that question, it would also take these existing investment firms maybe out of the – the dinosaur age of trying to do everything via email and security. And I know personally I've been involved in some issues where transferring data back and forth, right? Email can be a bit risky, right? So having this sort of online platform rather than just a glorified Dropbox, it gives the the existing investors some more confidence that, you know, Hey, these guys are taking their, you know excuse me shit seriously <laughs> and 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 they're starting to come out of this dinosaur age so they're starting to more evolve and it becomes a more seamless interface and you know I can click on the ppm straight away and sign it I can get my k1s blah 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 you know so that's all well and good how do you then have the other side of it because obviously access to white powder is the biggest inhibitor for any sort of investment firm so To then have a platform, what are you doing to attract more and more investors to CrowdStreet to then funnel them through to these individual investment companies and their associated ABC white label
0: backends? Yeah. So I think there's kind of two sides to the answer to that question. First, so from the perspective of the CrowdStreet marketplace, our number one tool for attracting new investors to the platform is, is online. Right. And that has and even to this day, I would say the, the the still the number one contributor is the simply the organic search that occurs. If you Google real estate crowdfunding or online real estate investing, I mean we are always gonna come up in the on that first page. And that is largely attributable to the fact that we were one of the first platforms out there. And when Forbes and New York Times and Money and other, you know, other you know, other platforms out there have written about us over the years, those, you know, those data points connect and and Google always makes us show up because we've always been a part of that conversation. So that's that's something that's just been fortuitous for us, right? By being out there early, it made us part of the conversation early and frequently, and that still helps us to this day. Uh, I would say also the other thing that we, we leverage on a daily basis is we're active on social media. Uh, facebook is probably the number one channel for you know for the things that we leverage on uh, to go out and you know meet new investors and what we've learned is that facebook is a, is a good place for doing it because you know obviously facebook has powerful you know understanding of who their users are and we know who our investors are and we can we can match that profile to the right people on facebook and so therefore when we show up in their in their feed it's relevant and as we've learned on, uh, for when it comes to online, relevancy is king. And so, if we can show the the prospective investor online something that is meaningful to them, based upon information that Facebook knows about them, then then we've served up content that's that's relevant to them, and that will oftentimes make them come in, sign up, and start perusing. And as they get to know us over time, then that's how a lot of those relationships start. Interesting. Very, very interesting. And. The other answer to the question to pivot to the sponsor side of the of of the equation is that it is interesting that we find that these sponsors who come to us they will obviously have their own organically grown investor base which has largely occurred by word of mouth over many years so those 300 investors for example have been carefully cultivated over a decade plus a lot of face to face meetings a lot you know a lot of referral by other investors and so now we find again what is somewhat symbiotic with our platform on the marketplace side is those sponsors are eager and interested in to understand how can they now take their own marketplace, right? And they say, if I'm going to go online and I'm going to license software from CrowdStreet, I now have the ability to attract investors to my own website in the exact same manner that CrowdStreet would attract them to theirs. So what we now find ourselves increasingly doing is coaching those sponsors on how to play the game. Because it is, it is essentially, it is, it, you know, it is a business to say, okay, you need to raise your profile. We understand how to raise our, our profile. We can help you raise your profile and attract new investors to your own website, that to ultimately become your investors. And w- really, at the end of the day, what is core to our fundamental belief is that why and why we did this is that I want to improve access to all investors out there around the country to say direct to investing you know, direct from sponsor to investor, commercial real estate investing, it happens, it's happening more frequently and online is making it more ubiquitous. And I'm happy to do it in the Crowd Street marketplace, but I'm also happy to help sponsors out there learn how they can cultivate, grow their own investor base, because really at the end of the day, what what really gets us up in the morning is the ability to bring the access to the end user. Right.
1: Well, that's very, very interesting. I guess my first comment is that you now sound like you're a marketing firm as well, <laughs> teaching teaching these investing platforms or these investing companies how to use Facebook ads and you know attract funnels and all that sort of stuff. And I know you and I have had a we had we met at the IMN conference and we had a massive talk about funnels, uh, you know. But that's very interesting that you've now nearly gone out of the space of quote unquote crowdfunding and in, in in nuts and bolts of what crowdfunding is or was or perceived to be and really a software slash let's teach these guys how to build their own, you know, empire essentially of, of, of continuing investors to go out there and do more and more
0: deals. Right. That's that. Have I summed it up correctly? Yeah. And, and I think part of the reason behind where we, where we find ourselves now in, in 2017 does date back to, you know, our roots in 2014 was that when we launched the CrowdStreet Marketplace, you know, and again, even this partially comes out of, uh, out of my own personal opinions coming to CrowdStreet was that I came from a real estate private equity operator. I knew what it was to raise capital in a GPLP format. And at the time, a lot of the other crowdfunding platforms that were propping up and getting going were online syndicators. And what I mean by that is, is that if you were to join the platform, you would go into an entity, which the platform itself created, you would become the investor of the platform. And then the investor would bundle your, the the platform would bundle your investment with a number of other investors and then invest that chunk of money into a sponsor's project on your behalf. But the sponsor would not know you, they would know the platform. And what we were looking to do and what I had seen was the ability for the operator, because at the the end of the day, the operator is who is managing the money. They are the fiduciary and it is their efforts, be it good or bad, that will determine the return. And even just at the time, selfishly speaking, when I was in the real estate private equity world, we knew what it was like to go out and raise LP capital at the institutional level. And, we, and that that was, you know, bigger sums of money that, that there is a very established industry that is very good at deploying LP capital. And it, and it largely, you know, traces back to pensions at the end of the day. And, but what we were seeing and what seemed most transformative to me when I was kind of on, on the verge of leaving the private equity world and joining the, the world of CrowdStreet was that if we could get access directly from operator to investor, that we would be harnessing, and through technology, that, you know, the, the Internet of Things is supposed to make things more efficient, more transparent, and drive, and through that efficiency and transparency, drive lower cost, And then if I was gonna create a platform, and then when I'm jumping into the seat of CrowdStreet and then contemplating should I or should I not form an entity and shove CrowdStreet investors into that entity, syndicate, and then go put a million dollar check into a sponsor's project, I felt to me personally that I was simply substituting the exact same thing which i was dealing with off, off offline online right. And i wasn't i wasn't making things more efficient or more transparent necessarily i was just i was simply substituting one link in a chain for another link but if i could connect operator to investor directly and add value by creating that connection and making that connection efficient and scalable then i would be removing a link in the chain and therefore we would be doing, we would be doing what we would hope to do, which was to make this world better for everybody. Make the operator, you know, less dependent upon that LP capital, make the investor understand and get to one step closer to the deal, and ultimately have better returns on both sides. And so that was that was part of our vision. And that's why we stuck to our guns. And that is one of the ways also today that we are different as a platform because. CrowdStreet, again, I'm not investing in those deals. It is those investors. I'm simply providing the technology and the marketplace to make it happen.
1: Very interesting, and I love I love that thought of you know disruption, right? That's what it is. It's disrupting a an industry that has been you know uh, institutional placing capital. People get the middleman gets a bunch of fees, and you know you get LP capital into your deal, right? Talk to me now about the business model behind CrowdStreet and the menu options for a both investor and an operator from the free stuff to the, you know, caviar that we have on the, the, the
0: I'm sure the, the white label software, right? Sure. Okay, so I'll start with the investor side and then pivot to the sponsor side. So on the investor side, the to join Crowdstreet and to start looking at deals and to ultimately begin to invest in deals, there are no direct fees to the investor. So we have, we have cultivated a marketplace in saying, what I'm, my goal is to provide education, provide a menu of choices, as you described, and then provide a path for those investors to find the right investment and then ultimately invest in those transactions which they find on the marketplace. It is fair to say that what at the end of the day that the investor will end up paying an indirect fee because the fees of which CrowdStreet charges are paid on the sponsor side, but they ultimately, and I would say not in every case, but most commonly become a deal cost. Just like a just like a legal fee or an appraisal fee, well now there is a fee for Crowd Street in the in the capital stack, which will show up on the website, and investors will see you know essentially what Crowd Street is being paid in a deal. So at the end of the day, what I think the most accurate way to describe it is that in, when it comes to the deal for those investors who participate in a deal, there will be a sharing of fees amongst sponsors and investors. Uh, They'll become, like I said, they'll become a part of the capital stack. So everyone will kind of pay their pro rata share, you know, at the same time in the world of private equity, there's called, there's, you know, preferred returns. So because, the deal cost goes up, then the preferred return becomes a little bit higher. So in essence, the sponsor is subordinating its potential to earn profits you know, to that fee itself. And again, at the end of the day, the fees aren't huge, so they show up. oftentimes our fees are are less than legal fees, so it's just a part of the the total capital stack. And then pivoting to the sponsor side, so that is the fee. So on a marketplace offering, if a sponsor comes to us and simply wants to go into the marketplace to, to do a transaction, then we will then charge them a fee to do it. By run, oftentimes running that transaction and being exposed to the world of online capital, you know, capital formation, they will then. It is true that about half of the groups that have come onto the marketplace ultimately become software subscribers because usually what happens is they see that experience and then they after after going you know from start to finish they will then come back to us and say I now get it I want that experience for all my investors not simply the ones that I met through CrowdStreet help me get that experience for all my investors at which we say, oh, that's great. We, we, you can have that exact same experience on your website. So the, ne- the next time you do a deal, it, you're, you're giving the CrowdStreet experience to your investors, now you have the, the choice to whether or not you want to bring that opportunity to CrowdStreet or not, that is now completely devoid of anything marketplace that is a software subscription.
1: Interesting. And, and what's the software worth for a investment? And then what is the fees? I guess it's everything's on the investor side. i uh, sorry, the operator side, correct?
0: Yeah, so on so uh, to to kind of roughly give you a, uh, a range of fees on the sub- software subscription side you know they start at high single digit thousand dollar you know eight or nine thousand dollars is kind of the minimum software subscription you know it can range up to we do have some global enterprises that use the the you know the software and so it could it can range up into six figures but you know we'd have to be talking about 50,000 investors and you know large large enterprise um, deployments um, you know but with a lot of the, the sponsors on the platform paying, you know, somewhere towards the lower side than the higher side of the range. And then on the, you know, on the marketplace side, then, you know, fees are going to end up the, the way that I always it, it, sponsors like to talk about cost of capital. That That's the easiest comment in here since that's the world they come from. And so while we do not charge on a, co- a cost of capital basis, if I look over the data of all the history of what we've done, I can tell sponsors that in general, if you take my flat fee model and you kind of equate it on the high side, it's still less than three percent cost of capital, but it's high twos. If we do a larger transaction and it ends up dropping down below two points of cost of capital, it can get down in the high, high single, you know, one one digit you right. know, range.
1: Interesting. That's that's it's and that's on a subscription basis with the with the, the software or is it just a one time fee?
0: The on the it's a it's an annual subscription. Mm-hmm. That is on the software side. And then on the marketplace side, there will be, there's two sides to the fee. So there is a, there is a year one fee mm-hmm. and then there will be a ongoing fee for managing the investors that will occur over the lifetime of the investment. So let's just say it is a five-year business plan. Then what we will do is if the sponsor simply wants to go into the marketplace, raise capital and then manage those investors, let's say we, we help them find 50 investors through the marketplace. Then what what we will what we explain to the sponsor is that in essence you are now coming into an online environment to make to forge an online relationship, and so therefore the bargain that you have made with the investor is that you will manage the investor in that online environment for for the totality of that investment, and so that is why we have an ongoing subscription fee in the marketplace just for that deal, because we can say well okay sponsor now that you have fifty investors there are ongoing re- reporting requirements on a quarterly basis and an annual basis for reports and K ones and so forth. And that we will then give you a very cheap subscription, you know, call it four or $5,000 a year, for example, to then use CrowdStreet technology to manage those investors online. But it will be with, our name at the top, not your name, and it will be through. And the investor will understand that that is through the CrowdStreet marketplace, and that the sponsor is logging on and then communicating directly to those investors through our platform. So that's that's kind of how it works on both sides. Which I said, which is why, in some ways, by using that software online, but through the CrowdStreet environment is why there, there may be a propensity for them to ultimately decide to, to use it for themselves because once they start using it, they like it, they experience what it is like to manage investors online. And really, the, 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 the core value proposition is what I've seen is that managing 15 or 20 investors online is about the same as managing one investor offline. <laughs>
1: I can definitely concur to that, <laughs> mate. I want to talk to you a little bit about your ebook uh, that you've just written. Uh, pretty, pretty awesome little ebook. We, in in that ebook, you talk a little bit about the Harvard management uh, process and the way in which they make uh, returns for their investors. How have you used that model and tr- to to help? And you may have already touched on this, but to help create that again, the platform, the ecosystem that is CrowdStreet.com.
0: Yeah, so I would say in essence, I mean, so the Harvard and Yale, the, the endowment models of investing, I have personally always found to believe that they are a superior model to most other out, other models out there. And, and their, their track records prove it, which is why I was interested in, in writing the article. And when you peer into that portfolio diversification and you understand what is it exactly about Harvard that they're doing that is different than the, the traditional asset manager, is that they are they have a heavy allocation to direct commercial real estate investments now that for harvard can take a couple different forms it can actually mean they might actually go out and acquire properties on behalf of the foundation that can also mean that they also they might manage they might invest directly in other managers either funds or direct joint ventures of of say, for example, of what we were doing in my pre- previous private equity world to go out and source LP capital for a particular project or portfolio. So it was, you know, and that's that was the story that I was trying to bring to the investors. We said, you know, for the individual investor, the one thing is that is very, dis, you know, kind of, death, you know, totally different was that these groups are taking commercial real estate and making it a pillar of their portfolio allocation. And the typical 60-40 bond, you know, stock bond portfolio right. oftentimes has, well, it may have no real estate in it, or it may have a sprinkling of publicly traded REITs in it but that even publicly traded REITs are not direct investments in real estate. REIT, by definition, a publicly traded REIT is buying the stock of a company that owns real estate Is its business, but you're buying the org structure, you're, you're buying the overhead of the company, you're buying everything that that company is. And so in by being in personally, before I came to CrowdStreet, by being able to invest in my own you know, private equity group's deal flow as an employee, in seeing the benefits of saying, when you come across that deal that you say, I know that deal, I know we're going to do well in it and, and I need to get my own money into it. And then seeing that turn into a two to three X equity multiple within three years to say that, that is what is different in that's what the endowment is doing. That is what ultimately I think every investor should be doing. And what we are trying to do through the marketplace is give them a, a, a bit like the best I can do for you is get you a step closer to that, which is get you to the operator, allow you to invest as their limited partner, and get into the one form of what Harvard is doing. So you won't get the entire. The other, the other part would say, well, if you actually go out and acquire an office tower, I guess for your own account, you're now acting exactly like Harvard. Well, most investors can't do that, so it's more peering back to the but investor, Harvard is going out in joint venturing with best in class operators. I can now give you the exact same kind of access to best in class operators to go joint venture with them and buy the same kinds of assets that Harvard is doing, which over the years have, is what enables them to trounce a sixty forty equity you know bond portfolio.
1: Very interesting. And also I wanted to add to the fact that with the comparison of the stocks, the in direct investment, you would have not only the, the, the coupon that is clipped from the cash flow, but also the other benefits of owning real estate—a physical asset, right? The, the, the depreciation and all the tax benefits, the amortization—you know, tenants paying down your loan—which are other benefits that aren't as foreseeable on the front end to an investor. They just see cash flow, and they just see you know, what's what's my cash flow this year? What's my cash on cash return? But there's other benefits of owning hard assets v your, your your stock portfolio sixty forty that you was talking about, which obviously ultimately adds to the overall return and and the success in which Harvard has found, you know, and other institutional um, uh, investors like that with, with with investing directly with the sponsors, right?
0: Yeah, and I think one data point which essentially sums up how powerful commercial real estate is over time. And then again, I think the key is to think about it over time, that there might be windfall opportunities to earn great returns over two or three or four or five years even. But if we want to think more cycle agnostically and think mm-hmm. 10 years, 15, 20 years, there's a, there's a very good reason why if you look at the family office you know, industry, the business of the country, and as I over the years, I've been able to have the fortune to you know get to know family offices, understand what they do and how they do it. And I would say prior to actually getting to know these family offices, if you were to ask me to say, well, what do you think is the, the average exposure to commercial real estate of the, of a, of a, you know, billion dollar and up family office, my guess would have been 20% perhaps. It turns out it's more like 50%. Wow. When you ask them why and the to their responses, we have never found anything better than conservatively leveraged real estate as a store of wealth and grower of wealth over a, you know, over a protracted period of time and family offices have two key benefits. One, they can invest in the, over the long term. They, they are literally thinking generationally. They're not thinking four or five years in the future. They're thinking about how they, they want to take an empire and grow it and, and create a larger empire to pass on to the next generation. And then two, they have, they have like, they have all the discretion in the world. They can do whatever they want, wherever they want to do it. So, it is those, so in that aspect, I love that looking at the family office as a model to say, the more you could behave like a family office, then I think the more you are ultimately playing the game at a different level over time. So look to emulate that model, think more long-term, think beyond the next cycle you know, try to find the best way to get to the best opportunity of the access to those deals that will, but over time, real estate has just never been, there's never really been a better store of wealth than hard assets like commercial real estate.
1: Yeah. And I think the biggest thing is it is commercial real estate when you're valuing the value of the income, right? It's valued on, on net operating income, which then unlike single family or resi, it's valued on comps and can be more market driven rather than, you know, a value add commercial space, multifamily, you know, storage unit, whatever you're going and adding value, increasing the NOI just by pure numbers, you're increasing the value of the property and you're increasing cash flow. Yep. hands back to your point, the most, you know, store of wealth. So, um, very, very interesting stuff. Mate, I know, I, I, you, you, I don't want to keep you very much longer, but I do want to know what the future holds for yourself personally and for for CrowdStreet.com.
0: Well, I think my personal future is tied, is very highly intertwined with CrowdStreet. Uh, <laughs> so, I would say that I think sh- my personal goals with these shared goals are, we have a, we have a, you know, we've been able to accomplish a lot so far with CrowdStreet. We have, I, I mean, I think we have immensely more things to accomplish, right? We have, we are at the beginning of this, I think, what will ultimately be a fun ride at the end of the day to watch, watch a market grow, watch it scale, watch it become a bigger and bigger chunk of capital markets. You know, my original thesis on this whole space before I joined CrowdStreet was, I think online commercial real estate investing will become a real thing. I think, you know, quote unquote, crowdfunding of real estate will show up and be a part of capital markets. Uh, it will never make the other part of capital markets go away, just like e-commerce hasn't made you know every part of retail go away. But it will show up and be you know be a force. And so my my hope is is that if we compare real estate crowdfunding to to the e-commerce world, you know we're still in 1997 right now. We're we're just getting up off the ground. We're just becoming you know noticed for the first time. And then so I, therefore I, I think kind of the my hope is the sky's the limit, and that you know like I said my. The mission ultimately is to get more and more investors exposed to this, help them understand and educate them that you know investing in commercial real estate is something that is coming to them, is coming them is available to them today, is increasingly coming to them tomorrow, and we know that for a fact because we keep licensing more and more software to companies that are wanting to try to get out and go directly to investors you know, some of which now are global institutions saying we want to raise, you know, hundreds of millions or perhaps billions online direct to consumers. And to say that the world, is, you know, the future is bright for the individual investor. And that that's, that's a great thing. And, you know, we look forward to just basically playing our, our part of, you know, helping this get done.
1: That's, that's so awesome. We didn't even talk about today, which I, I'll have to get you back on for another show, uh, about the whole Side of that online market and trying to attract those uh, those investors through the funnel into the, the the marketplace to then be that investor and and how that mind shift of investing has changed from a very mano a mano, i.e. the 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 old school way of of doing business in real estate, which is how these investment firms have created their wealth over the years. It's just through three hundred or four hundred people in a one database, they cold call them, they know them personally, word of mouth, to now a world of I'm scrolling online. I want to invest $50,000 here. I want to invest $100,000 there, which is still, I think, as you said, it's in its infancy, 1997, but such an incredible, exciting future ahead of us. (laughs) I want to end the show with giving, uh, you giving me your top five investing tips. Ready to dive into it? Yeah.
0: Mate, what is the daily habit you practice to keep on track towards your goals? Working with my team, Uh, it is about making sure that everything gets done that needs to get done that day. It is not more complicated than that. Uh, you know, collaborating rapidly with your teammates and we, depending upon them, having them depend upon you and just make sure that by the time you leave the office and go home and oftentimes in that case, it just means I I keep working from my laptop. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> you know, in another in another environment, that you know, you, you close the the laptop at the end of the day, feeling good about what you have accomplished, knowing that you got to everything that you needed to get to, and then are ready to do it again the next day. I
1: sound like you guys would be big fans of writing out your lists and writing out your to do list for that day, right?
0: Yes, we use a sauna. That is yep. our that is our daily tool. Nice, nice, love it, love it. Who is the most influential person in your career today? I gotta say it's it's uh, two people, and I'm just gonna bifurcate it slightly. So where I came from in my previous uh, company, uh, my, the two key principles. Uh, so Bob Scanlon and Todd Gooding, they were the guys who taught me everything I know about commercial real estate. You know, I joined as a I joined my previous company as a multifamily guy, but not a you know institutional level commercial real estate guy, and then emerged four years later. You know fairly well astute in commercial real estate and know every, I owe everything about that to those two people and and they're still today my my mentors.
1: Awesome stuff. It's really it's, it's good to look back, right, and think of those people who have uh, influenced your career so much so, so well done. Uh, what is the most influential tool in your business to date? And that could be a phone, it could be a piece of software, it could be your own white label software. We've been talking about that for a lot right now.
0: <laughs> you know, I, I, I mean, I do I have to say, honestly, and you know, not to plug our own product, but there is no way we do we do this without using our own software every day i mean i we come in we are tracking thousands of leads we are tracking hundreds of investments per month we are now tracking thousands of active investors and we're doing that with on the investments team uh, you know a handful of people and so there, there's absolutely no way we even begin to contemplate that without the product. And so I owe you know, everything in terms of my day-to-day to our product team at Crowdstreet for developing a killer software tool that is, that is absolutely mission critical to what we do.
1: It sounds like it's creating a very much a product ecosystem within Crowdstreet, right?
0: Absolutely. Yeah.
1: Uh, what's been the biggest failure in your career to date? And what did you learn from that failure? Oh, yes. Okay.
0: So, <laughs> we gotta go. so I would say, look at 2008 and this was, so what's interesting is that the biggest failure wasn't directly, directly attributable, but indirectly attributable to the downturn. And it was a story of two properties we owned in Oklahoma city. Uh, they were multifamily properties. We acquired them in, in 2007. They had a, 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 a mix of regular apartment tenants in them and student housing for the, the FAA Academy in Oklahoma city. Uh, in essence, there's a lot of people who, who go to Oklahoma city. There's an airport there. The FAA Academy is there. And there are people that will come in from as short as three days to as long as 16 weeks for um, air traffic control training. Our two properties were uh, two of 10 properties that catered to this, to this segment. We saw a lot of demand and we rapidly, uh, Migrated our properties from about an 80% apartment dweller, you know, student housing project to 100% student housing all dedicated to the FAA Academy because of the, this rapid expansion in, um, of, of the FAA Academy, you know, uh, att- you know, attendees coming in for training for both new and ongoing. Then we fast forward to 2008. Now, the downturn, you know, so and then through 2008 to mid to late 2008, the downturn is starting to hit. The market is changing everywhere, including Oklahoma City. And that, in essence, and now we, that that huge demand, which took our properties from, you know, 90% occupied but mostly apartment dwellers to then being 100% occupied of FA Academy students, as you can imagine, and that, by the way, the deal, the, the, you know, a, a, an apartment at the time, and one of our buildings was renting for, you know, six or $700 per month. If we flipped it to FAA Academy, it was renting for $75 a day. Wow. And what we would do in exchange was essentially clean it up and furnish it, and then we could flip it. So obviously we were highly incentivized to try to get as many students into the buildings as possible, which which led to 260 units going all FAA housing. Well, that's great until the FAA – all its own So the, the opportunity itself was what kind of made the market crash. In 2008, the FAA, which had previously, the academy, which had previously been very kind of closed off in terms of how you penetrate this market, was having trouble housing its students, opened up the floodgates of competition, and we saw a 40% increase in beds in, in one quarter. Wow. Because, at the time, because the market is turning... And because the, the Oklahoma City market saw that this was a very good gig, that if you could get access to, you obviously... I mean, what 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 apartment owner wouldn't like to flip a $600 a month unit into a $77 per day unit, if given the opportunity? So we saw a massive flood of, of supply. So much so that our 100% occupancies in a course of a quarter or two went from 100% to 50%. We went from... 25% cash on cash returns to then literally then having to go out and, and, and make a capital call in the partnership. Wow. So we said, hey, we've given you all this money and now we need to take it back because we are now in the midst of a, of, a, of a market that has turned completely upside down on us. We had to push those all mostly back to apartments. And guess what? Now today, they are about an 80-20 mix of apartments <laughs> to FAA housing students because what we were you know so I, I so the the big lesson learned out of that is think more long term just because a a a market opportunity is you know staring you in the face which was the reason we bought these properties in the first place is we thought that the demand for faa housing was going to increase it increased so fast that we essentially got drunk on the faa business model we weren't thinking beyond what happens if the supply were to dramatically increase because in essence this model was so good that it was unsustainable. And and so that, that was, that was a hard lesson learned and we had to ultimately, so we had to unfurnish, you know, two uh, upwards of 200 units. We had to dispose of that furniture. We, that we obviously bought for a lot more than what we disposed of it from. We had to go out and, you know, remarket to a tenant base that we had we had started to basically push away i I mean it was it was a large dose of humble pie and i think you know what i would probably tell the investors out there is that you know think think two or three steps ahead because markets markets change they you know good times come and go think about what's sustainable, think about what you can do. If whatever thing is great changes for the worse, or whatever thing is worse changes for the better. And, and, and don't move too far too fast and, and understand that anything can change at any given point.
1: That's an incredible piece of advice. Uh, think long-term because thinking short-term can sometimes be uh, to, to your demise.
0: Ian, um, where can people reach you to continue the conversation? So for starters, you can go check out our website at www.crowdstreet.com. You, you can always e- find me. I, I send out, you can sign up for our weekly digest. You'll get a direct email from me. My email address is just my first name, Ian, I-A-N at crowdstreet.com. You know, ping me there. Um, I will, you know, either myself or one of the investor relations teams will follow up. If people want to chat, happy to have conversations. And and again, again, just educate people on commercial real estate because you know, that education I think is worthwhile because the access is coming. And where can people reach your free ebook that you have that? Directly on the website. If you go to the okay. homepage, there's a, there's a bar across the top where they can download it right there.
1: Perfect. Perfect. Well, you know, I think the biggest takeaway pieces of advice from today's show was really thinking long term, and the fact that, you know, trying to emulate family offices, commercial real estate, is it the best vehicle for storing and maintaining long-term wealth? I think you really hit the nail on the head there when, you, when we were talking about that a little bit earlier. Um, obviously, best of luck with you and your Crowdstreet, you know, crowdstreetcom with the, with the software and your ecosystem that you're building there. I really appreciate you coming on the show. Thanks again. Have a great rest of your week and we'll catch up soon. Thank you, Reed. It's a pleasure to be on and thanks
0: for the opportunity. Thanks, mate.